Welcome to the Stakeholders Podcast, the show where we try to answer the question, what's at stake? We dive into how an organization's pursuit of their objectives affect or are affected by the people. Our guests come from the private industry, government, education, and more to discuss how they manage with their stakeholders in mind to achieve long-term success. Today, we're joined by Nicole Pamani. She's an independent sustainability consultant and the host of the Do What You Can for the People web series. Nicole, I can't thank you enough for being here. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure. First off, thank you so much, Andy, for having me on your show. I'm delighted to be here. So as you mentioned, I'm an independent sustainability consultant, and I really like to focus on the circular economy. And for all the people who are listening, we're like, what is the circular economy? Don't worry, I'm going to break it down for you real quick. So we currently live in a predominantly linear economy where we take resources, we make goods, and then most of the time they end up becoming waste. In contrast, a circular economy seeks to change that model and do what we call close the loop. So rather than sending materials to landfill or wasting resources, we find ways to recirculate them through the economy. Composting is my favorite simple example. So we grow our food, we eat what we can, and then any food waste is decomposed and returned to the earth to create a nutrient-rich soil. And then from that, we can grow more and probably better food. So I like to believe that there's a circular model that works for every industry, and I work with small and medium enterprises to really suss that out. I have a dual background in operations and marketing, so sometimes that means figuring out the logistics to make a circular model work, and sometimes it means crafting a compelling narrative to showcase the work that mission-driven businesses are doing. And sometimes it's just a combination of all of the above to create a truly sustainable strategy. As an operations, uh, with an operations background, I'm sure that you have a lot of talk about the stakeholders and how you need to get everyone in the room to make sure that everyone's on board to accomplish the same goal. And can you tell us a little bit more about your purpose and why you do what you do? Yeah, for sure. So at my core, I'm a helper. Um, I love coaching, teaching, consulting, advising, basically just being that cheerleader and advocate for the things and people I truly believe in. Um, I think that at their core, all people are good and want to do good. They just sometimes lack the knowledge and resources to do that. So while I am a circular economy enthusiast, I'm most passionate about sustainable packaging solutions. And packaging is something that I think everyone encounters in their day-to-day life in so many different ways, but they probably don't give too much thought to it. So uh, let's talk about, for example, food packaging. So most people are familiar with how to recycle your food packaging, but most people don't realize that they're probably doing it wrong. And so a big part of my personal purpose in life is to shed light on how the small actions that we take every day could be incrementally better. Um, education is a huge part of what I do when you talk about things like the waste hierarchy, which actually proposes that to refuse, reduce, reuse, and repair come before recycle, and recycling should be your last resort action. Um, Consumers, though, are only as powerful as the systems available to them. So on the flip side of the equation, I love working with brands and manufacturers and sometimes even like governments and municipalities to figure out how to improve the systems in our economy. You brought up a lot of very interesting points right there. Um, The first one I actually want to break down a little more is how you believe that man is, you know, intrinsically good. And actually, um, I agree with you 100% on that one. And it's something called the responsibility principle. And it's about how if the person knows the right knowledge, then they are going to do the right thing. And that's a really powerful statement coming from you, especially since you're doing it uh, for sustainability. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about the refuse, reduce, reuse, repair, and recycle concept? Yeah, so the waste hierarchy is what those five R's and there are many more R's um, are called. And I'll stick with the food packaging example because I think it's really tangible for people. So the first step would be to refuse to buy any prepackaged produce. Um, so like your prepackaged lettuce or vegetables or whatever have you. If that's not an option, then we can go down a step and reduce our plastic packaging by bringing our own mesh produce bags to the store. Um, looking another step down is reusing. So glass and plastic food containers are a great example of this. I have reused my Talenti ice cream jars to death. Um, and then if you look at repair, that's like if you cracked a container lid, instead of throwing it away or putting it in the recycling, can you fix that with like a piece of tape and continue using it? And so those are all the actions that we should try to take before we actually resort to recycling something. Why should we do all of that before recycle? I'd like to dive in a little bit more into the amount of energy that does take to actually recycle. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, there's, first of all, value in all material. And not only is it in the raw material or the finished good that you're looking at, but there's added value, like you mentioned, in the energy or the water that went into producing that. So if we can extend the life of that product by reusing it or repairing it before we recycle it, which then uses more energy and water to process it, then we're ultimately and collectively using less resources. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I know I definitely have a, a lot of different things that I can uh, refuse uh, right off the back that I can think of. And in Europe right now, there's uh, actually an interesting topic of discussion that's going on that you brought to my attention, and it's something called the right to repair. What is that exactly? Yeah, so the right to repair is a movement primarily in the EU and a little bit in the US um, that's centered around reducing electronic waste, um, and it's primarily focused on increasing access to repair institutions and materials. So. Basically, the right to repair movement wants the consumer rather than the original manufacturer to decide who, what, where, why, when, how, how much money they're going to spend to have a piece of equipment to be repaired. Um, and this, I think, is particularly interesting for our conversation because the primary challenge is about defining the scope of this access and balancing all the different stakeholder interests in this. Absolutely. And, and what is the current process for the repairing of devices currently? Is it just like, are you thinking of Apple or is there a bigger, broader network that the main public may not be aware of? Yeah. So currently we operate primarily in, especially in the U.S., in a fully closed repair system. That means that only the original manufacturers, so people like your Apple, your Samsung, your Dyson, whatever have you, um, and their authorized repair partners are able to repair parts of your electronics. And there's some like restrictions on things that absolutely cannot be repaired. Um, and in a closed system like this, the manufacturers dictate the rules. They can actually refuse to share instruction and repair manuals. They can refuse to sell and share spare parts. They can also lay claims like if you take apart this device, your warranty is null and void. So a great example that I have is a few weeks ago, I tried to take apart my Dyson vacuum cleaner to clean it because of all the dust accumulation in there. And I was watching a video on YouTube how to do it. 
Um, and there was a warning there that said, if you take apart this last bit to get at the central core of the motor, which is where the most dust is, um, and you do it wrong, then your warranty could be null and void. And so it's it's kind of like taking away the power from me to actually service my equipment and make sure it stays running as well as it should. And manufacturers can intentionally design things to have this shorter effective lifetime or become obsolete quicker. So talking about something like Apple, your iPhone, I mean, we all, anyone who has an iPhone knows that when the new model comes out, your model suddenly just doesn't feel as fancy. It might start running a little slower. And even if you don't experience those things, um, after a year or two, your battery starts to kind of deteriorate a little bit. And in order to extend the lifetime of your iPhone. Yeah, sure. You can replace the battery, but you have to go to an authorized dealer. You can't actually take it apart yourself. And they've done that purposely um, to make sure that the consumer or like a third party person who isn't paying a commission back to the original manufacturer doesn't have the right to repair. That actually reminds me of um, an episode of the show Mad Men where uh, the main character, Don Draper, is just at the park with his family and drinking, just finished drinking his beer. And on a much more rudimentary level than what we're talking about here, just tosses the can into the middle of the park, like without a second thought. And I'm wondering, how are we going to look back at what we're doing right now with these cell phones where we just use them for a year and then basically throw acid into the trash can? It's a real problem. And that brings up a really interesting topic of discussion, which is like, what is a way, right? Um, is there in a way? I'm of the opinion that there is no throwing things away. And one of the stakeholder groups that I think needs to be examined more when you talk about throwing things away are the communities where this waste is piling up. So for example, uh, when we recycle things, put it into our curbside recycling, a lot of people don't know that because of contamination, uh, meaning like food grease still on your packaging or just putting the wrong types of plastic in there, contaminates the stuff. And then up to 70% of what you put into your bin isn't recyclable. Like people don't know that it's that high of a number. Um, and what happens is we ship all of that plastic waste Overseas, it accumulates as a big pile in some other person's country, and eventually it ends up in our waterways and our oceans and becomes microplastics. And so how do we kind of address the fact that there is no such thing as throwing things away? We're just transferring waste from one part of the world to another and impacting communities that are out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, I remember I was reading a couple of years ago that China started sending our recycling back because it wasn't actually recycling. Yeah, that was a huge issue about uh, China rejecting our recycling because for decades, the U.S. had relied on China to process those plastics and had never developed the domestic recycling systems. And so now we're scrambling trying to figure out, okay, where do we send our stuff? And we're resorting to countries that have maybe laxer environmental laws but we'll face the same problems and we'll eventually stop accepting our waste or trying to figure out how do we process it here. But our recycling centers just have never had to do that. So they're not equipped to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a, it's this real conundrum. And we've already started diving in quite a bit of the stakeholders that are involved in this. I mean, we've involved uh, from the everyday consumer to countries who are, I mean, it's becoming a worldwide issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about who your primary stakeholders are. Yeah, and um, in anything that we're talking about, 
regarding the circular economy, it's pretty much up and down the entire supply chain because, well, it's not even really up and down anymore. You've made a circular supply chain. So we're talking about the consumers, manufacturers, um, authorized repair partners, but also independent repair partners. We're talking about parts manufacturers. We're talking about logistics providers. And logistics means like the forward shipping, but also in some cases, reverse logistics to recollect that material. Um, The number of stakeholders that can be engaged in a circular economy is just so much broader and so much wider. I've never heard that before. Can you tell us a little bit more about the reverse logistics? Sure. So reverse logistics um, is particularly important to one model of sustainable packaging that I think is fascinating, uh, which is packaging as a service. So traditionally, when we think of packaging, well, we don't really think of packaging. We're more concerned with what's inside, which is the product that we've bought or ordered online or whatever have you. Um, Packaging is by nature a secondary item. It's there to protect your product, It's there to store your product. It's there to uh, provide important information like ingredients or a best buy date or warning label or something like that. And it's there to offer a branding opportunity for whoever sold it to you. Um, So when you think about package in that sense as a transitory item, then you can think of packaging as a service where you actually don't own the packaging, but the company that is selling the product owns the packaging. And in that model, they would need to recollect the packaging from you so that they could clean it, fill it up again, and sell it to someone else. A great example of this is like an ice cream container. You're only interested in the container as long as you have ice cream. Once you finish your ice cream, you don't need that container anymore. Wouldn't it be great if the company could take it back because it was a robust enough material, clean it, refill it, and sell you more ice cream? I think that would be ideal. So in this kind of a model, you need what's called reverse logistics to get that packaging back to the manufacturer. And are there any companies currently involved in doing this on a large scale? There are. So one of my favorite examples is Loop Store by TerraCycle. Um, They are for sure piloting in New York and I believe maybe Paris, don't quote me on that. Um, And they are selling all kinds of grocery items, household items. They've partnered with, I think, over 75 brands to kind of pilot this model. Um, And it is a little bit more expensive because unfortunately we live in a world where sustainability comes at a premium. But I think that once it catches on, over time it will become the norm and it will actually become cheaper for you to behave this way. Yeah, as you were saying that, I was thinking, um, I remember when I was, just first starting into marketing, even as a student, um, my professor brought up that crazy um, a Patagonia campaign where they were like, don't buy our product. And now they're just getting into it even more. They're just like, uh, give us our product or basically we'll repair it. And I, I'm kind of connecting the dots on a lot of different brands like that. That's really interesting. Um, and have you, have you identified who would be a secondary stakeholder uh, to the circular economy? Yeah. um, So like I mentioned, the communities around the world where all of your waste is piling up is definitely a secondary stakeholder. Um, As corny as it may sound, the planet is a secondary stakeholder. It's where we source all the raw materials that we need to make everything. Um, So I think it's really important that in a new economy, we actually consider the planet to be a stakeholder. Um, We can't live without 
what this planet provides for us. So why shouldn't it be given as much consideration as the communities that we're impacting, the people that we're selling to, all of those stakeholders? And then the last secondary stakeholder, I would say, are the policymakers that are going to have a really big impact on creating the rules and the regulations to kind of guide us in this transition. Absolutely. I just saw the um, Surfrider Foundation out here on the West Coast. They've been fighting for the oil rigs not to be able to uh, be uh, put into our uh, West Coast, and they finally won. And I mean, obviously, it's the um, administration that's in charge. It's definitely part of it. But it's crazy to think that there could have been a giant oil rig like right next door. There already are, but there could have been more that popped up. Have there been attempts or what have the attempts been to really try and clean this up for secondary stakeholders? I've seen some videos of riverbeds in, say, India of just plastic, like you can't even see the water. What are some initiatives that have been taken to try to clean those up? So I'm not super familiar with the specific initiatives, but um, I think if we just go back to like the right to repair example, where if you look specifically at e-waste, um, because of our closed repair system, if we were to open that system and have more independent repairers or give more access for consumers to actually repair their stuff and, you know, fix things like a broken screen or replace a battery or whatever have you, um, those are kind of some of the examples of implementing the circular economy where we just stop sending so much stuff to those communities and stop impacting them in such a negative way um, and actually take ownership for the products that we're putting out into the world. So there's another movement called Extender Producer Responsibility that proposes that manufacturers of goods are responsible for the materials that they put into the world beyond the point of sale. It is an extended producer responsibility. Um, in the model that we current, in the reality that we currently live in, you buy a product from a company, that's it. They don't care what you do with it. They don't care how you dispose of it. Their responsibility to you and to the planet has ended. They've sold you the good, you've received it. With extended producer responsibility, regulation comes in and policy comes in that essentially demands that they think about the end of life for these products and make sure that they're getting into the right streams and either being recollected by the company themselves to be remanufactured or going to a refurbishment center so that they can be made into something new or being upcycled or being recycled at the very least properly um, and not just kind of thrown together with all the other junk in the world and shipped overseas. That's really interesting. I, I love that extender producer responsibility. And uh, Nicole, this is some really, really interesting information. And uh, I like to ask uh, all of my guests this question because it's really interesting. And I think that it really applies here. There's this concept called the separation fallacy. And the idea is that ethics and business are not attached, that a good business decision is going to uh, produce an unethical decision, then a good ethical decision can't possibly make for a good business decision. Now, I, I would say that you disagree, but what are your thoughts on that? Have you run into this in your business life? And how have you uh, worked this out with the people that you ran into that with? Yeah, that's a great question. So you are correct. I don't subscribe to that narrative. Um, and the whole reason that I got into sustainable business and the circular economy was actually because I was very much in a business where making ethical decisions seemed like not feasible. Um, I was working for a company 
where I was the head of logistics and imports and we were importing a lot of plastic stuff from China and selling it, you know, at super low prices and just trying to maximize our profit margin. And that was the way it was. And that was the way it was always going to be. And I had a huge moral conflict with that. And I actually left the company, got an MBA in sustainability with Bard College and formed my own business devoted to working in sustainability and supporting mission-driven businesses that share my belief that businesses can be ethical um, and can also be profitable. So again, going back to this conversation around right to repair, moving towards a more open repair system doesn't just put the power back into the hands of the consumer. It creates new jobs in the repair industry and it creates new revenue streams for original manufacturers because they can be selling spare parts. And not only are they selling spare parts, but for them, it achieves economies of scale because you're just selling more of what you've already created and developed. Entirely new industries are popping up in the green economy that are going to need so many intelligent people and skilled laborers from every imaginable industry. And we're all going to have to come together and innovate to solve these highly complicated problems. Um, it's the reason I'm so in love with the circular economy. It's a model that forces you to entirely rethink what an economy means and what it should look like. It's not about extracting raw materials and converting them into a huge one-time payout. It's about building systems that are infinitely self-sustained, that reduce the burden we as a species place on the planet and that create opportunities to rethink, redesign, improve, and, and truly adapt over and over and over again. Yeah, and there's a term that um, you actually introduced me to, um, virgin resources and how we need to reduce the use of virgin resources. I think everything you just said, it's absolutely true. And I think that we need to rethink how we do things because honestly, I want the next generations to thrive. And Nicole, I want to thank you a lot for being a guest on the podcast today. This has been a lot of great detail and attention to that detail. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we sign off today? The one thing I'd like everyone to walk away from this conversation with is you don't have to make a big change to see impact. Change happens with the small things that we do every day. It could be as simple as rinsing out your takeaway container before you put it into your recycling bin. Just that small action ensures that your plastic materials, if they're the right type of plastic, will actually be recycled and not just thrown away. Um, there are little changes that we can make in our day-to-day -day lives that collectively have a huge impact. And I think sometimes people feel overwhelmed by the concept of climate change and, oh no, the world's going to end. And if you focus on the big picture, you will get overwhelmed. But if you just focus on the one thing that you can change in your day, you'll make the small changes and you'll do them over time. And eventually together, we'll get there. And I'm going to put this call to action once again. Focus on what you can do every day. Don't try to be the next big thing that's going to change the world. Like small steps are what's going to win this. And Nicole, again, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. And I'll see the rest of my listeners in the next episode.